Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you're tuned into Solutions Watch here in March of 2022. And as you will recall from the introduction video for this series, Introducing Solutions Watch, I made the point at that time that this series is not about telling you what to do with your life or exactly how to proceed from here. This series is about critically examining the proposals for ways that we can move forward toward the type of world that we are seeking to construct and critically examining their merits and demerits and then circling back and seeing what worked, what didn't work, applying those things that do work to our lives and discarding the rest. It is an ongoing process of assessment and evaluation. And on that note, and in that context, I would say that given recent events in Canada and the gathering convoys in New Zealand and the US and elsewhere around the world, it's probably a good time to ask the question, are petitions and protests and lawsuits the answer? So long story short, for people who don't like to listen to long, long-winded explanations, get to the point, James. <laughs> uh, the answer is no, they are not the answer but they can serve a practical purpose on the way toward a real answer. If you want to hear the long-winded explanation, here we go. I, in fact, raised this very question and pondered the merits and demerits of these types of tools in the Solutions Watch tool belt a full decade ago. If you cast your mind back to 2012, uh, you might remember Corbett Report Radio episode 177 on why James probably won't sign your petition. But I am here to put a little bit of a, a pinprick of reality in the bubble of illusion, the, the ballooning uh, bubble of illusion that a lot of people are living in, that uh, these types of petitions and marches and, and basically petitioning the government, oh, please, Mr. Government, come in and, and make things a little bit better for us. If you can just, if you can just make things better for us, everything will, will, will be magically better. It's, it's along the lines of the same type of magical thinking that the Obamaites had back in 2008. Obama is going to pay for our mortgage and we're never going to have to pay for gas again. Obama's in, Obama's in. And, uh, and ultimately, I think what this does is it gets people invested in the system as it exists, ruled by the people that it's ruled by secretly and, of course, off the record, behind the scenes. And you get invested in that system by basically begging for scraps from the master's table. So when we go and we, we petition and we redress, uh, we ask for a redress of grievances from the government, uh, oh, please, won't you make this a little bit better? Or won't you allow us to keep a little bit more of our money that you take from us through violence and taxation? Oh, please, just a little bit more. Uh, well, I don't think that ultimately that's the, the type of change that is going to actually change the system as it exists. It is, in the end, all it is is an amelioration of things. It makes it a little bit better and perhaps a little bit more livable. And let me say also that this is an, 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 a criticism that I'm leveling based on ideals, not necessarily one that's based on practicalities. So at the end of the day, if you're starving and your family's on death's doorstep and you think that, uh, that the government coming in and changing this law or tinkering with that regulation will uh, be the difference between your children starving to death and living, then, uh, then I, I guess it doesn't matter at the end of the day if, it's, uh, if petitions are, are not going to fundamentally change the system as long as your children live. I understand that argument, so I'm not here 
here again to say that these types of things are completely ineffective or completely we should shun them in all ways and forms. But I think we have to start looking at the ways that we play into the system as it exists, the ways that we invest our time and our money and our energy in helping to build up the system that we understand is being used to enslave us. And we have to put ourselves in the way and and put ourselves as the the wrench in the works that will stop, uh, hopefully stop the system and the gears from flowing. Stop the gears from flowing? (laughs) My apologies 10 years after the fact for that butchery of the English language, but hopefully my powers of extemporaneous exposition have increased in the past decade. That being said, the point is taken. Uh, Yes, petitions and lawsuits and protests are not the answer. They are begging for scraps from the master's table or asking the master to please beat me a little bit less, be a, a little bit kinder when you apply the whip to me, or or asking the black-robed judges of the Saturnalian priesthood to please allow me to have some of my rights as a free human being. Obviously, that is not the way towards constructing the world that we want to live in. But having said that, as I do point out in that episode, if you listen to it for its full context, yeah, these things can be effective as practical tools in certain particular situations, in certain historical moments, uh, uh, to affect change. And they should be in our solutions-providing tool belt, and we should not discard or discountenance them altogether. So, let's take some examples. Here's a very straightforward example. Uh, People in the corporate board audience from Oregon will know, hopefully, that since 1956, there have been several times that the would-be authorities there in Portland have come to the people of Portland saying, hey guys, we think it would be a really good idea to add this toxic industrial byproduct called uh, sodium fluoride into your water supply. What do you say, gang? (laughs) And Portland voters rejected it in 1956, and again in the 60s, and again in the 80s. They keep coming back with this same proposal time after time. I wonder why. 2012, as Corbett Report listeners will remember, uh, they came back again. Hey guys in Portland, what do you think? How about we start adding fluoride to your water? We've never thought of that before. And there was a need for a response. So a group calling itself Clean Water Portland, which I believe is now Clean Water Oregon at cleanwateroregon.org, came together and provided a type of solution. So you can read through the whole history on their about or their history page on Clean Water Uh, Oregon.org. But uh, long story short, yet again in 2012, the Portland City Council made an attempt to sidestep voters by ordering mandatory fluoridation, despite the fact that Portland voters had already rejected fluoridation three times. In response to the City Council vote, citizens formed Clean Water Portland, now a part of Clean Water Oregon, and within days, hundreds of Portlanders had signed on to help. In in an incredible grassroots effort, CWP, Clean Water Portland's largely volunteer team, gathered over 43,000 in-person signatures in 30 days in a successful referendum campaign to force the council decision back to the voters. All right, so there's a lot of history and and context there that probably deserves mentioning. 43,000 
signatures in 30 days is quite an accomplishment. They needed 20,000. They ended up getting 43,000. So there was definitely some um, some grassroots movement and organizing going on around this petition to get a referendum. And they held the referendum um, in a context that was highly unfavorable to those who were trying to keep Portland's water clean. Uh, there was a lot of money that was suddenly flowing into the pro-fluoride campaign at the very end of the the, uh, the back-and-forth political bickering about this before it went to the vote, including some of that money being funneled off to various groups in clear attempts to purchase their votes, essentially, uh, in the vote. So what was the result of all of this? James, let's not hesitate any longer. Let's get to the good news and show folks that, yes, Portland remains fluoride-free. We'll take it from our own Portland Tribune as Portland voters reject water fluoridation. There weren't too many smiles Tuesday night at the site of the election night party of the pro-fluoride campaign, whose main slogan was Help PDX Smile, PDX being a nickname of Portland. Measure 26-151 lost by a resounding 3-2 margin, the fourth time in five tries that Portland voters have turned down the idea of fluoridating the city's water supply. Quote, at a very fundamental level, people understand that we don't want more chemicals in our water, end quote, said Kim Kaminsky, leader of Clean Water Portland at a campaign party for fluoride opponents. Awesome. Problem. Reaction. Solution. In a good way for a change. And yes, that can be done. So uh, if people want the bigger context of that story, I'll, of course, throw in the link to that particular edition of New World Next Week, where I covered that with James Evan Pilato. But I did a lot of work on that subject around that time and over the years generally. So type fluoride into my search engine. You'll find all sorts of resources on that topic. But there you go. There's an example of something that, yes, on principle, in the sort of ideal world, I certainly don't think that voting and petitions and what have you is the solution and the way forward. But in specific instances, it has provided a specific tangible result for the people of Portland for the past decade. They have been drinking, if not fluoride-free water, at least water that has not been added extra fluoride um, by the uh, the chemical industry. So that is a, a genuine a tangible win that has taken place. And it is not the solution because, of course, they're going to keep coming back over and over throughout the decades and it will have to be this big effort every single time. That That isn't the ideal way to live in the world. But at the very least, it has provided a particular practical solution for a particular moment in time in a particular locality. Let's take a less straightforward example. So let's Let's tackle the recent freedom convoy in Canada and what it did or did not accomplish. So first things first, was the freedom convoy a win? It really depends on what you were specifically asking. Did it end all mandates in Canada? No. Did it provoke certain politicians to get ahead of the parade and pretend that they were on board with it the whole time? And, hey, guys, don't worry, we're taking our mandates. Yeah, certain provincial, uh, uh, <laughs> I was about to say governors, premiers. <laughs> I really am not Canadian anymore. Certain premiers did get, get on board that bandwagon and start saying, don't worry, guys, we're getting rid of the mandates. So there were certain wins that took place politically, but the broader question, was it the sweeping national thing and all mandates have been dropped and everything has been dropped. No, it was not. Um, did it incite the most draconian response in Canadian history, freezing the funds of pre peaceful protesters 
undermining the faith in the Canadian banking system that shouldn't have been there in the first place, but undermining whatever faith did exist that is literally the underpinning and the basis for the Canadian monetary system and, by implication, the broader international monetary and financial structures that exist. Yes. Hell yes, it did. And is that a good thing? And in, in a way, it is. But I guess that depends on how we see this. Because, of course, it's a horrible thing that protesters had their funds frozen, even for a short amount of time or whatever, because, as I said, this is the precedent for what they want to install in the future on a permanent basis going forward. So that's, that's nightmarish, and that's horrible. But the win side of this is that I, I now, I, I see, I directly experience, because I'm getting contacted by people every single day from Canada and elsewhere, who for the first time, potentially the first time in their entire lives, are seriously, really thinking about the banking system. And wait, I've got all this money sitting in an account. I've got pension, retirement funds. That's Are they going to take it? What should I do? People are for the first time really, truly admitting to themselves the depth of this problem. That is, if not a win in and of itself, at least a step towards the win, which is, well, what are we going to do about this? How do we move forward from this and start realizing we need to detach ourselves from that system? quickly before they take away the ability to do so. So in a sense, strategically, this could be a big win, depending how this is spun one way or another and how people use this as motivation for going forward or go back to sleep. So in the end, it's, well, say it with me, it's all about narrative. I know, I know you've been hearing this a lot lately, but that's because it's true. Whether this was some dangerous insurrection or whether whether it was a bunch of average, everyday, blue-collar workers who were feeling the threat to their lives and livelihoods, who were using their basic rights as Canadians uh, to demonstrate and protest and to voice their concerns and to ask for the redress of grievances. Which is it? Which is it? Is it dangerous insurrection or is it just people protesting peacefully? Well, that depends on the narrative, the spin, the PR. Who's, which media are you listening to? Which characterization? Did you go see it yourself? Did you talk to any of these people or are you taking the CBC's word for it? So which narrative wins in the end determines how the protests are viewed? retrospectively? How will the history books determine what happened at the protests? If we go back to status quo, business as usual, and the CBC is the the news organization of record in Canada, and we just listen to whatever the politicians say, then yes, this was a dangerous insurrection, and only by the implementation of the Emergencies Act was uh, Fidel Trudeau able to just pull that out by the skin of his teeth and save the country. But This is not status quo. This is not business as usual. And as I've been stressing, we have a part to play in setting that narrative and the meaning of those protests. And to not let this incredible crisis that was generated by the government go to waste. As in, oh, okay, they invoked their emergency powers. There's nothing we can do. Let's all sit back. No, this is the time to motivate people and say, see, this is what is coming. So I guess the question then is, are there smarter ways to protest? Uh, Are there ways that do not evoke the kinds of press coverage, the predictable kinds of press coverage? Look at these violent insurrectionist extremists. And as you will know, if you've been a Corporate Report listener, yes, there are. And I've pointed pointed it out before, even when it is being done by groups whose aims, agenda, and overall uh, game plan I certainly do not support, like Extinction Rebellion. 
Today I want to look at a very specific story that came up about Extinction Rebellion recently. This one we'll take from whatsupwiththat.com, uh, which ran under the headline, Extinction Rebellion Accused of Faking a Miner's Protest. Miners are furious Extinction Rebellion successfully fooled a BBC reporter into believing XR protesters, Extinction Rebellion protesters, dressed in cardboard safety helmets were actually miners demanding the closure of their own pits. And uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, there is footage of the report up on online. I would suggest you take a look at it. Um, and this article goes on to say, I guess we can't blame BBC reporter Joe Coburn for being fooled. She probably doesn't know what a real worker looks like. But um, as for Extinction Rebellion, has anyone else noticed they seem to have this desperate need to be accepted as normal people? But they aren't normal, or at least they seem to come, seem to come from a very narrow demographic. They mostly seem to be a bunch of idle, climate-obsessed rich kids. Well, that's, you know, that is an interesting point. When you ever you see these Extinction Rebellion, they're not very diverse groups, folks. It all seems to be young white people. <laughs> and we know, we know that diversity is important. So we can see that these this is just a young, white, rich, white person group, right? Oh, wait, the identity politics doesn't apply in this case, I guess. Anyway, so again, you can take a look at the footage. BBC, Politics Live interviewing, earnestly interviewing this Extinction Rebellion protester in front of these miners who are striking and, and, and protesting against their own mine, um, making factual errors about uh, saying, for example, the community of Bradley, when Bradley is literally just the mine. There is no community there that is behind the protesters, as this Extinction Rebellion spokesperson is saying, and other such factual errors. And, oh yeah, literal sa cardboard safety helmets that the people in the back are wearing. But they're totally real miners, guys. <laughs> I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just nonsense. So, here's my hot take on this particular piece of turgid fake news garbage served up by the MSM liars. <laughs> no, seriously, yay! Yeah, good on, good on XR for doing this. Uh, this is exactly what needs to be done. Now, I wish there were people on other sides of the equation doing this type of thing, rather than people who are do leading phony protest movements that are funded by billionaires for the bankster uh, takeover of the planet, but... I, I wish there were people really doing this type of thing for, I don't know, something important. 9-11 truth, or health information, or whatever it is, whatever your pet cause is. Now that clip comes from a Propaganda Watch report that I filed a couple of years ago on culture jamming with Extinction Rebellion. And I would encourage you to go and watch the full report, uh, because there are some other examples that I provide there of exactly that type of interesting and creative protest, which, hey, don't you don't have to agree with what they're trying to put out, but the, or the message that they're putting out, but the way that they're putting that message out there is creative, it's fun, it gets attention, and it uh, circumvents a lot of the tired tropes and narratives that get slung around about protests. Oh, look at these violent protesters threatening the stability of our society. Um, there are different ways to draw attention to your cause. Some of them, some of them, fun and self-evidently harmless, almost ridiculous in ways that generates very different types of attention. So um, I pointed, I've pointed to examples over the years. Another example that you could get from that corporate report radio uh, 177 that we were listening to earlier on why James probably won't sign your petition. Um, uh, there, I pointed out at that time a decade ago in Japan there was a protest by anonymous. Remember when Anonymous was, was like this group 
that seemed to have this political agenda and people were dressing up in the Guy Fox mask and going out to protest and things. Remember that? I wonder whatever happened to that. Hmm. Anyway, uh, at that time, anonymous hackers were protesting some new uh, laws that were being implemented in Japan. Uh, illegal download laws. Illegally downloading <gasps> copyrighted music and movies would be criminalized under these uh, laws. And there was a lot of protest and pushback and concern uh, amongst the Japanese public about that at the time. Not just because of, oh my god, think won't someone think of the Hollywood studios? But also because, essentially, the only way to really enforce that type of law is to make ISPs into snoops looking at looking at everything you're downloading and checking oh are you downloading an illegal movie so they would have to implement all sorts of surveillance on the citizenry in order to do so there was a lot of concern about this so anonymous hackers got together in Tokyo to protest these laws and what did these anonymous hackers do throw bricks through windows light things on fire marry cats and dogs no, no, not at all. Uh, in fact, uh, as you can get even from mainstream establishment news sources at that time, even internationally, news.com.au, for example, anonymous hackers pick up litter in Tokyo protest. And it was about how this group, all these people put on their, their suits and ties and put on their Guy Fox masks and went to pick up litter from the park for an hour. And that was the that was the protest. And it did get international news attention because that's... What are you doing? Oh, hey. And by the way, this is what they were protesting. It was an incredibly effective PR move at that time. So it definitely did bring attention to their cause in a, in a very different way. Now, having said that, clearly when bouncing castles and, and honking horns can be portrayed as threats to national security by an establishment mouthpiece media that doesn't question anything coming from any politician's mouth... I think the time for fun and creative protests may have passed. Uh, maybe we're not in that historical moment at this precise moment in time, but I guess that does raise the question then. Okay, so what is the equivalent of that in these times of extremely dire need to show, to bring attention, but in a way that cannot be portrayed as violent insurrection? Anyway, that's something to ponder and think about. Here's another avenue that people like to explore. Lawsuits, legal action, bringing the court system into this. Now, this is something I have talked about and largely dismissed and poo-pooed over the years. Oh, please, courts, can you please gavel down on the right side of history this time? No? Oh, okay, all right. Well, I guess we don't have any rights. Obviously, I, I think we all see the potential pitfalls for relying on the just, justice system, in quotation marks, to deliver actual justice. But having said that, something that I have pointed out in recent years regarding 9-11 truth and its success and or failure, well, one way of measuring that is not necessarily the legal actions that have been brought and successfully prosecuted the neocon cabal for participating in 9-11, right? No, of course not. But I have stressed over the past several years, something that 9-11 Truth can point to as a success is winning in the court of public opinion. Not only raising awareness of the existence of false flag terrorism as a technique, technical as a technique as a tool that is used by power structure after power structure all throughout history something that was might i remind you almost unthinkable to the average person a couple of decades ago is now mainstream 
news and the State Department is going around with their own false flag conspiracy theories. I mean, this is that was definitely one of the wins. And as I say, the court of public opinion, I think, is now much more on the side of people who have questions about the lies of 9-11 than they were uh, a couple of decades ago. I think that is a genuine success. And I'm glad to see other people are picking up that idea and moving it forward into the COVID era. So people are putting on um, trials on the, in the court of public opinion about the COVID crimes. Again, is it going to have legal enforcement? Well, certainly not at this point and not until a wide number of people are aware of the existence of these problems, but that's the entire point of bringing it before the court of public opinion. So I, I think that is something that we poo-poo or dismiss to our detriment, because I think there is something valuable there. But even just straight up regular old litigation, actual legal challenges can have an effect. What? Really? Yes, sometimes they can. And uh, I'll give you a very specific example that came in in my email inbox just the other day from a listener in British Columbia who uh, actually has some direct personal experience with this. This is uh, Shad Budge, and I'll link up his Odyssey channel in which he has a video of himself using the techniques that he talks about in this email. So you can actually watch them in action. It's very interesting. But I'll just read you a bit of this email where he writes, uh, James, your work over the years has been nothing short of invaluable. And for that, I thank you. I know you're extremely busy, so I will keep this as concise as I can. Earlier this week, I acquired a massive legal victory that I want to share with you regarding a potential episode of Solutions Watch. I am located in British Columbia and was a frequent user of the public libraries. On December 22, 2020, I was subject to a substantial amount of harassment by the employees of a local library regarding my medical exemption from face coverings. I offered the employees documentation from my doctor confirming my exemption and stated that I have every right to use the library that my tax dollars pay for. They retorted by claiming that I was still required to wear a face covering, regardless of my exemption. I advised the employees that the ministerial order had an entire section regarding exemptions in an effort to prevent this kind of discrimination, and the order is not some sort of buffet where they can pick and choose which sections they wish to abide by. I then encouraged them to call the local police, at which point they left me alone. Later that night, I noticed that the official library website specifically noted that people with medical exemptions from wearing face coverings are indeed allowed inside the library. I went back to the library the next day, December 23rd, and decided to secretly record the audio via my phone in my pocket. This turned out to be a good move, as I was denied entry by the employees for my exemption. I clearly informed the employees of my medical exemption and pointed out the aforementioned policy from their own website. The employees stated that they didn't care about the policy and alleged that my unmasked presence was a threat to their health and safety. I got tired of arguing, so I called the RCMP for assistance. When they showed up an hour later, I informed them of my exemption, offered them my doctor-issued documentation, and pointed out the website policy. The RCMP officer stated, There's no such thing as a mask exemption. You cannot go into a public place such as a library or inside of a building without a mask on. And if you're not willing to wear a mask, you're not welcome here. I advised the officers that their statement was erroneous and offered them a hard copy of the ministerial order with the section on exemptions highlighted, the officers refused to view the order and stated that they're not going to debate the existence of mask exemptions. The RCMP officers continued on to declare that the library is privately owned and has the right to refuse me service. 
They informed me that I am not allowed inside the libraries unless I wore a face covering, and if I entered the libraries without a face covering, I could be subject to arrest. Shad goes on in the email to talk about being stonewalled on his appeal to the BC Human Rights Tribunal. Perhaps no surprise there. But then he goes on to say, last week I was able to attain obtain legal counsel who took the initial steps of litigation and issued a legal threat letter demanding that I be granted access back into the libraries. A few days later, counsel representing the library responded by granting me access into the libraries once again, assuring me that they have instructed their employees across all locations to refrain from discriminating against people unable to wear face coverings. This was not just a win for me, but for everyone using any of the two dozen library locations scattered across the region. I'm glad to say that I am writing this message from a library in my hometown. I should also note that I have used the tactic of threatening litigation to regain to regain access to other businesses many times. I even filmed one of them here. And as I say, I'll throw in the link to the video where you can watch him using this tactic in action. And uh, for anyone saying, oh, well, he's just some sort of rich, swanky lawyer type who's able to threaten litigation here, left, right, and center, uh, as he freely admits uh, later on in his email, no, he does not have the financial resources to really follow through with this litigation. But the threat of litigation enough is enough to get these people to pay attention and recognize that they are legally obligated to follow the law and are personally liable for not following the law. An incredibly important point, and exactly why they are working so furiously right now to try to implement the digital gulag, where there will be no human being that you can appeal to as a human being or even threaten directly with litigation for their personal liability in breaking the law. There will be no human. It will be an algorithm, and it will decide, and uh, it, there will be no arguing with it. And so that's why they want to bring in the digital system. Until such time as that digital system is in place... This is something that can be done. You can use litigation and or the threat of litigation to get people to actually follow, even follow the law, let alone actually do things uh, as free human beings should be doing them. So at any rate, there are, there are things that can be done, can be practically achieved with these tools. So let me reiterate once again, push every button, use every tool in your tool belt. If it works, great, awesome, use it. If it doesn't work, okay, well, you can either refine it, tinker with it, try it a different way, or maybe give up on that tool and go to a different one. But this is this is an ongoing process, and it will in, in continue to involve that, involve that kind of critical assessment. Is this working? How is it working? How is it not working? Let's try it again. Let's do it a different way. Okay, let's, let's not do that. Let's do this. I think that is the way forward. So no, petitions, pro uh, uh, lawsuits, uh, protests, these are not the answer, but they can be at the very least stopgap solutions on the way towards changing the world. So having said that, the ultimate answer, of course, is transforming ourselves and our lives, creating completely alternate parallel economies and communities uh, of like-minded people who are on board and understand these issues and are working towards the same things as we are. That is the ultimate solution. But there are a million stopgap and other partial solutions and things that we can be doing to, to fend off the coming digital gulag and what have you. Uh, there's so many things to look at, both small and large, in the meantime, that that 
is what I am going to continue doing here on Solutions Watch. So I hope this has helped to clarify some of those issues and my bigger beliefs on this, as well as the practical of what we can do on the ground while we're doing it. There's many, many, many more things to say and explore on these issues, but that's the point of Solutions Watch, and I will be here doing it week in and week out, and I hope you will be here to join me and support this work if you find value in it. Having said that, I probably still won't sign your petition. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com.